Church Communion Inquired Into or A Treatise Against Separation from This National Church of Scotland by Alexander Shields Concluded Objection 8 They withdrew from us when we stood most in need of them and their preaching, lying by from that work of preaching and deserting their ministerial duty when snares were most abounding. Therefore we may withdraw from them now. It is the character of the hirelings and strangers whose voice Christ's sheep will not hear, that when they see the wolf coming, they leave the sheep and flee away. John 10, 5 and 12. Yea, we find Paul refusing to take John Mark with him, because he had departed from them, and went not with them to the work. Acts fifteen thirty seven and 38. This is to be reckoned and carried onwards as a very great disorder when a minister is so far out of order that he will not work the work of the Lord, from which we are commanded to withdraw. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, 7, 11, and 14. Vindication, Head 4, Ground 7, page 84. Answer. First, this was indeed our seventh argument for withdrawing in that broken and declining state of the church when they were always leaving us in greatest extremity. But even then, all did not so. Some left the land upon a call to another place. Some left it in extreme hazard through a fainting fear, as is noted. And now they do not continue in that fault or practice. It is a bad argument that we should withdraw from them because they withdrew from us. That is as much as we should leave our duty because they left theirs, and that now we should hurt and punish ourselves in depriving ourselves of the gospel because formerly they did injure us in depriving us of it. For we must always look on it as a misery to want the gospel preached. Second, that scripture, John 10, 5 and 12, proves only, one, that Christ's sheep should not hear strangers, that is, such teachers as have a strange commission and authority to preach, not entering in by the door, but climbing up another way, verse 1, and such as have a strange voice, strange doctrine, contrary to Christ's doctrine, verse 5. This is not our case. 2. That it is indeed the character of an hireling and stranger to leave the sheep and flee away in hazard. That is one character, but that alone does not make the fleers, hirelings, and strangers. All hirelings and strangers do flee and leave the sheep, but all that flee and leave the sheep are not therefore hirelings and strangers. Christ does not say that his sheep must never hear their shepherd that leave them in hazard. They must leave them indeed while they are left of them, but when they return to their duty again they must be received, even albeit they will not always confess their fault, which is their duty to do. 3. As for Acts 15.37 and 38, it says, first, that good men may be backdrawers from the work of the gospel, as John Mark. Second, that these good men must not be spared from censure for their goodness, but are to be refused the honor of concurrence with the faithful ministers in visiting of churches.
third, that all good men are not of one mind about this. Barnabas was not of this mind, but contended strongly for Mark. Fourth, that there may be hot contentions that may come the length of division and parting asunder among the eminent servants of Christ, and yet no separation. Paul did not refuse to hear Barnabas, nor he him, nor either of them John Mark. Nor did ever Paul write to the churches that they should withdraw from Barnabas or Mark. If it had been so, we would have been in hazard of losing that precious treasure of the gospel of Mark, which was written by him after his defection. Fourth, I shall consider that place, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, 7, 11, and 14, afterwards. Here it will be sufficient to answer, 1, that the disorderly brethren there spoken of are the busybodies that work not at all, verse 11, the men in the country that cast themselves out of all employment. The apostle was in his own example, so far from this disorder, that he wrought with his own hands, at labor and travel night and day, that he might not be chargeable to them, and therefore exhorts them all to work in their employments, verse 10 and 1, Ephesians four eleven and 12, so that it is not mean of ministers literally. 2. Though it be transferred to ministers by analogy, where they do not work in preaching, they are to be withdrawn from after the church's sentence, when the church is constituted and hath judicatories. And though privately before that sentence, brethren may withdraw from them, yet not when they return to their duty. We cannot but withdraw from hearing when they do not preach, but the question is whether we shall withdraw when they do preach. Objection 9. But the schism cannot be fastened upon us, but upon them who have divided the church and widened the breaches thereof, by their reproaching, misrepresenting, and misinforming against us. We are commanded expressly to note such schismatics and mark such causers of division and offenses, which they effectuate both by their practice and by their words, crying up their own party and informing against the more pure and faithful remnant, Romans 16.17. Such an one was Diotrephes, prating against the apostles and the brethren with malicious words, and receiving them not, and casting them out, which the apostle threatens he would animadvert upon by the severity of discipline and condign sentence. 3 John 9.10 Vindication, Ground 8, page 86 Answer 1. This was our eighth argument, when in that broken and declining state of the church, Reproaches and oils cast into the flames of contention were too frequently and fervently followed on both hands. When they complained of our dividing the church, and we complained of their dividing it, and none of us were free of it. They called us schismatics, and we called them such, indeed upon some better grounds, but neither they nor we would take with the charge, or confess it, as indeed neither of us could be charged formally with a stated schism. 
But now that is much fallen, and now it should be our glory to forget and forgive, and overcome evil with good. 2. That scripture, Romans 16.17, doth not command us to avoid every one that causeth divisions and offenses occasionally and passively, by giving the first rise to divisions, by offensive courses, for that way divisions may be caused by infirmities, and a man's using his own light, and by the offense of others, whom upon that account to avoid, were contrary to that same apostle's doctrine in that same epistle, chapter 14 and 15. But it commands us to avoid them which cause divisions and offenses actively, designedly, and purposely, and do promote and abet a downright schism, and will not be persuaded to let divisions fall, though it may be done without prejudice to truth. I hope it will not be alleged that the ministers we are speaking of are such schismatics. Next, to avoid there, is the same with the duty of turning away, 2 Timothy 3.5. Extended there to self-lovers, covetous, proud, unholy, having a form of godliness without the power. This cannot be interpreted always, and only of withdrawing from church communion, for then we must withdraw from all that are self-lovers, from all that are unholy, from all that are hypocrites, which none will affirm. But we may avoid men several other ways, by withdrawing from personal communion with them, or familiar converse, and from communion in their corrupt designs and courses. 3. The place, 3 John 9 and 18, does not speak to the case. For first, it speaks of the grossest of schismatics, a diotrephes loving the preeminence, an arrogant prelate. That is not the question. The ministers I am speaking of are not such. Second, he was not content only with prating malicious words against the apostle and brethren, but could not receive or acknowledge the apostle, verse 9. Neither did he receive the brethren, and forbade them that would, and cast them out of the church, verse 10. If any minister would do so, he ought to be forsaken with detestation. Third, we see here also a church officer, though guilty of many scandals, is not suddenly to be withdrawn from, because he is not to be suddenly censured. John, the apostle here, only threatens to do it if he came, but he defers until he came, though by his extraordinary apostolic power he could have done it before, but the question is not of withdrawing from Diotrephes. Objection 10. We judged scandalous disorders a sufficient ground of withdrawing. Such were the profane scandals of the sons of Eli, which made men abhor the offering of the Lord, 1 Samuel 2.17. From such brethren especially, from which rule ministers cannot be exempted, for if they be not first our brethren, they can never be our ministers, we are expressly commanded to withdraw our company, if they be fornicators, or covetous, or idolaters, or railers, or drunkards, or extortioners, including all the like scandalous disorders. 1 Corinthians 5.11 Vindication, page 87 
And that known and much-urged place, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 14, withdraw from every brother that walketh disorderly, etc. Note him, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Therefore our duty to themselves, yea, to greater office of love we owe to them, in order to their conviction, does oblige us to withdraw from them, to shame them out of their sin and not suffer sin upon them, especially because they are brethren, 1 Corinthians 5.11, that walk disorderly against and without the order of their office and the order of the church. Qui quod sui est ordinis atque officii non faciunt et faciantes turbant. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 14. Testimony Against Toleration, page 32. Answer 1. This was indeed our ninth argument in the vindication and our seventh argument in the testimony against the toleration in that broken and declining state of the church, Yet even then all these scandals were not applied to ministers. And though all be withdrawn, from to whom they are now applicable, my debate will not be weakened thereby. Though all be discountenanced that follow scandalous disorders, yet others may be countenanced that do not follow them. 2. That place, 1 Samuel 2.17, is an argument against separation. This was not duty to abhor the offering of the Lord for the scandals of these priests. Elkanah and Hannah did not abhor it. 3. Nor can that place, 1 Corinthians 5.11, prove what is adduced. For I grant indeed, ministers are not there exempted. But, first, we are not pleading for hearing these that are scandalous in that degree they are spoken of, that is, ministers that are fornicators, idolaters, drunkards, etc. But the apostle doth not say, Keep not company, if any man that is called a brother be guilty of anything that is a scandal, offensive or stumbling, if he faint and prove unfaithful in a day of temptation, if he be guilty of any defection and will not confess it. Second, he does not bid them withdraw from church communion with such, but from civil and personal communion, not to eat and drink, converse familiarly with them. Verse 11. He does not allow them to have so much converse with scandalous brethren as with others that are scandalous. But with reference to others, he means certainly communion civil and personal, and not church fellowship, as verses 9 and 10. Therefore, he must mean the same here. We find, as was showed before in the 11th chapter, he allows them church fellowship, even partaking of the sacrament with drunkards, verses 21 and 22 to the end. And therefore this must not be understood in a sense contradictory to that. There is no withdrawing ecclesiastical allowed to the Corinthians upon the account of scandals. Third, Though it were understood of church communion, and that the eating there, 1 Corinthians 5.11 were to be meant of sacramental eating, as the independents understand it, yet in a constitute church this non-communion should be posterior to the church's sentence, purging away and censuring these scandalous persons. 
And so it must be understood in connection with the beginning of the chapter where excommunication of such scandals is enjoined. Verses 5 and 7. Fourth, the place, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 14, will not prove that we must now withdraw from all ministers, guilty of offensive disorders, Though I shall grant that ministers are not excluded from that rule by analogy, though literally idle men are understood, as was said before. And I shall grant in a broken and declining state of the church, when there is no judicatories, there may be a private withdrawing from disorderly brethren for such disorders after admonition. Yet, First, this is not for every walking disorderly, but such as not working, which is a shame to the gospel, such as are highly heinous, hateful, and dishonorable. Every disorderly walking in ministers and professors is not of that nature. 2. Nor must it be in every case, but only when it is a mean to make our brother ashamed of his disorder. I fear our withdrawing from the ministers in question shall neither have that effect, nor is a mean proper to produce it. We may more probably obtain this another way, so withdrawing is needless. 3. Nor is the withdrawing to be understood always or only of the ecclesiastical withdrawing, though learned Vutsius in his Political Ecclesiastics, Part 3, Book 4, understands it of civil personal withdrawing from domestic and familiar converse. And four, the withdrawing that is ecclesiastic must be after the church's sentence in a constitute state of the church. The judicatories must note him, that is, stigmatize him with disciplinary censure, and then we must withdraw and keep no company with him, but carry towards him, as in the case of excommunication. Now, the present state of this church must be looked upon as constitute. Objection 11. The ministers are so defiled with the defections of the time that we cannot but fear their administration of ordinances be not clean, and that which scares us from partaking with them is that which is said, Haggai 2, 12-14, If one bear holy flesh in his skirt, and touch bread, etc., shall it be holy? The priest answered, No. But if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? The priest answered, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer is unclean. Hence, we are afraid our communion with them, when so defiled, will infer a participation of their sin, being a communion in sacred things, which makes the partakers of the bread to be one body, 1 Corinthians 10, 17-20. Testimony Against Toleration, page 31. Therefore, we dare not be partakers with them, nor have fellowship, Ephesians 5, 7-11. Vindication, Head 4, Ground 9, pages 87 and 88. Answer, first, I grant all hands have been defiled in these unhappy times, few have kept clean garments, and the defections of ministers have been very defiling. And this made us to abstract in declining and broken times of defection and division. 
when we could not have communion with them without countenancing their sin. But now, though these things, not removed by confession, be very burdensome, afflicting and discouraging to the tender, yet the defilements of ministers do not defile the ordinances to us. And now the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government being constituted and established without these defilements, it is very consonant to the practice of the Lord's servants in all ages to have communion in ordinances with protestations against the corruptions of officers. Second, that place, Haggai 2, 12-14, needs not scare us if we understand it right. For one, it says indeed that the holiness of officers or ordinances cannot sanctify all their actions that do administer them or the people that partake of them. And likewise, that the uncleanness of officers does pollute everything they handle. But to whom? To themselves before the Lord, according to that word, Titus 1.15, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. It says, preaching and praying and every duty is unclean to all hypocrites and impenitence of either ministers or people. But the uncleanness of officers does not pollute the ordinances to others, no more than the holiness of officers can sanctify the ordinances to others. 2. This uncleanness here spoken of was legal and ceremonial, opposite to ceremonial holiness, whereof we have the law, according to which the priests here gave their answers to the prophet's queries in Leviticus 22, 3-5, etc., Now, in the New Testament dispensation, this hath no place, yet the ordinances may be polluted several ways, as, first, when the essentials and substantials of an ordinance are corrupted, this makes communion sinful. Second, or when in the manner of it, it is modeled and molded according to the inventions of men, in dependence upon and subordination unto the usurpations of men, Neither in this case can we countenance it without sin. Third, or when it is irreverently abused by the miscarriages of those that are about it, as when it is indifferently administered to the precious and the vile, and without the holiness that's due. This pollutes the ordinance to those that are guilty of these miscarriages, but not to others there present. Nor can former miscarriages, now not connected with the administration, pollute that ordinance at all to others. Third, there is not a word here that the godly should withdraw in this case, and if we observe the practice at that same time of Haggai's prophesying, we shall find the godly and the prophet himself joined in ordinances with these same priests, as is showed above, Ezra 3, 5 and chapter 6, verse 3. Third, the place, 1 Corinthians ten seventeen and 10, will not make our communion, as now circumstantiate, sinful, as I cleared from this place above. Here I shall only say, first, tis clear from this place, where the worship is sinful, communion in that must be sinful too, but we are not speaking of sinful worship. Second, Even when the worship is materially lawful, but circumstances make it sinful, communion therein is sinful, 
Eating of these things that were sacrificed to idols was lawful in itself, but in idol temples before the idols, idolaters, and offended Christians, on the other hand, it was sinful, and communion therein was sinful. Sometimes some circumstances made ministers preaching to such and such meetings under indulgences and tolerations complexly considered sinful, then we durst not have communion in these circumstances. Third, whether the worship be sinful or lawful, communion in it infers incorporation with the worshippers. That is clear from the place, all that eat at the table of the Lord are one body. And all that eat in idols' temples of things sacrificed to idols are one body also, and have fellowship with these idols or devils. And the apostle makes it very absurd, verse 12, to partake of the Lord's table and the table of devils, and be incorporate with the Lord's worshippers and devils' worshippers at once. Hence it may well be inferred that we should countenance no worship, not so much as out of curiosity, but where we may own incorporation with the worshippers. So, if we go to the Mass, we are embodied with anti-Christian idolaters. If we go to the curates, we are there one body with the prelatic church. But now it is not absurd for us to own ourselves one body with the Presbyterian ministers and professors of Scotland. We always owned we were of the body of the national church. 4. This says the godly were to withdraw from idle temples, but not from the church of Corinth, nor from all these that went to these idle temples when they came together to the Lord's table, as was cleared above. Fourth, the place, Ephesians 5, 7, and 11, will not infer what it is adduced for. For, one, it is a bad consequence to argue, we must not partake with whoremongers nor covetous persons, verses 3 and 5. Therefore, we must not join with Presbyterian ministers and gospel ordinances that have been offensive in their course. Tis true, we must partake with none in sin, but we may partake with sinners in duty, especially with these that have been sinners. But they that have left off these sins, for which we stood aloof from them before. 2. It is no partaking with the unfruitful works of darkness to reprove these works by protestation, and join with these that have been involved in them, as soon as they are separated from these courses. 3. The godly did join with the angel of the same church of the Ephesians, though they had fallen from their first love and first works, Revelation 2, and yet were not reproved by our Lord Jesus. 4. The Donatists in former times subjected the same argument in defense of their schism. Quomodo incorruptus poteris permanera si corruptis sociaris. That is, how can thou continue incorrupted if thou be joined in communion with those that are corrupted or defiled? To which Augustine answered, Sociatur sequis mali aliquid cum iliis comitat, aut comitensibus faveat, si neutrum facet, nullo modo sociatur. That is, 
He is sinfully joined with them, whoso commits any evil with them, or favors and connives with them that do commit it. But if he do neither, he is no way sinfully joined. Objection 12. But albeit we should not be partakers of their sin, yet we fear, so long as they do not confess and forsake their sin, wrath shall be upon them and us too if we adhere unto them. The ground of our fear is from these scriptures, Joshua seven eleven and following. When Achan sinned, all Israel is said to sin, and to have taken of the accursed thing, and therefore all shared of the stroke, and especially for ministers' unfaithfulness. There are many scripture woes and threatenings thundered against them and the people for adhering to them, Isaiah forty three twenty seven and 28. Thy teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore I have given Jacob to the curse, etc. Lamentations 4.13 For the sins of her prophets and iniquities of her priests, etc. See also Isaiah 9.16, Jeremiah 14.15 and 16, Ezekiel 13.10.11.14, etc. Ezekiel 22.25 to the end. Testimony Against Toleration, page 31. Answer. First, this was indeed our fourth argument for withdrawing in the time of toleration when we could not have communion without partaking of sin, and partaking of the sin did make us liable to the partaking of a threatened judgment. But when communion with ministers may be had without sin or accession to their sin, we need not be scared by their judgments. All these places of Scripture cited do suppose the people to be some way guilty of the sin of these, for whose sake they are threatened, one of these ten ways. 1. By cooperating and working with them as helping causes, that is a direct participation of the guilt of it. 2. By counseling or encouraging to it. 3. By approving and applauding the sin. 4. By provoking and tempting to it, and laying stumbling blocks by omission or commission to occasion it. 5. By consenting and submitting to it. 6. By conniving at it, and not rebuking it, or not restraining, or resisting it. 7. By not warning of it before it be committed. 8. By not mourning for it and pitying the sinners. 9. By desiring in heart to do what others do wickedly in external suits. 10. By doing the same sin, by analogy that others do, or something like it, of the same sort and kind, though it be not every way the same, as mariners were punished for Jonah's sin, because as Jonas fled from the true God, as if he had been an idol, so they served their idols as if they had been the true God. Now, any one of these ten ways will involve us in the guilt of others' sins, and expose us to the hazard of their punishment. But it is not every one of them that will make our communion and worship with the person sinful, nor oblige us to withdraw, in order to absolve ourselves from that participation. For in separation as well as communion, we may be partakers of their guilt, 
Several of these ways mentioned, to wit, the fourth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth way. But if we partake of their sin not personal but official, the first, the second, the third, the fifth, or the sixth way, our communion is sinful. Second, as for that scripture, Joshua 7, Israel did communicate with Achan's sin several ways, though it was secret, that is, the seventh way, because Israel did not carefully observe and warn one another to take heed that they meddled not with the accursed thing. And the ninth way, for Israel coveted in their heart what Achan took with his hands. As also the tenth way, by analogy, they might do several things that were as ill. But, however, Joshua never dreamed of withdrawing from Israel for Achan's sin, which was not known, till it was discovered by the Lord. So we are not to withdraw for the sins of hidden Achans and unseen hypocrites. Third, that place, Isaiah 43, 27 and 28, does clearly suppose people to be guilty of their teacher's sins as of their first father his sin. There also mentioned, which they were guilty of by imputation and propagation, as being represented in him and procreated of him, so likewise they were guilty of their teacher's sins, not by imputation indeed, but by imitation and concurrence and approbation, as tis said, Jeremiah 5, at the end. Consent, obedience, connivance, not warning, nor mourning, and all the rest of the ways above specified. But as all these degrees of participation did make them liable to the threatened curse, so according as the sins of their teachers were, so these degrees of partaking with them did make their communion sinful or not sinful. If they were official, such as heresy or idolatry, or infecting the people, then it was their sin to have communion with them. If they were only personal scandals or church corruptions not confessed, yet consistent with the foundation and edification, then communion was not sinful, or, if it had been so, the prophet would have commanded them to withdraw, which he does not, as was showed above. Fourth. As for that place, Lamentations 4.13, I answer, 1. These sins were very atrocious, as shedding the blood of the just, which the people should have restrained and hindered, and because they did not so, were justly threatened for it. This does not quadrate with our case. 2. The people was guilty of these sins of the prophets and iniquity of the priests, all the ways above mentioned. But now we need not be partakers of any of the sins of ministers, any of these ways by our joining with them in worship. As for the other places cited, I have answered them above. Objection 13. This will bury our former testimony against affection. Answer. 1. All particular testimonies of particular periods of the church are sometimes buried. That which was the testimony 1,000 years agone is buried, and a more ample and clear testimony is transmitted to us in the stead of it. 
2. The matter of the testimony is not buried, but the manner of prosecuting it, as formerly by separation, so now by communion and protestation, etc. 3. As the testimony in several respects changeth with the times, according as the enemies of truth change their assaults and weapons against it, and defections from it, and perversions of it, and contradictions to it do vary, so the testimony can never be buried as long as all truths and duties are witnessed for, and errors and sins are witnessed against by us in our respective stations. And nothing is condemned what was approved before, nor approved what was condemned before, and there is no engagement to forbear any duty. 4. What though some of the integral or accidental parts of the testimony were buried, if the essential and substantial part of it be vindicated, we never pressed every part or pendicle, clause or consequence of all the integrals of our testimonies, as the bond of our communion. We may condescend in some things, not to bury, but to waive them. 5. There is no part of the testimony and hazard to be buried by this union, but this that the ministers not confessing their defections is a ground of withdrawing, which I deny simply was ever our testimony. But the then continuance in defections was a ground of withdrawing. This testimony is not buried, but rather victorious, because these defections do not continue. 6. Let us have a care, lest a contending for keeping up our testimony against affection in unadvised ways, we do not bury our testimony against schism. 7. It will tend much to the honor of the testimony to have it recorded, that at such a time, in such circumstances, a suffering party did maintain it under all discouragements and difficulties, as long as defections continued. But as soon as ever they had any access to join with these ministers without sin, they had such love to gospel ordinances and such respect to the peace of the church that they would no longer separate, notwithstanding all former provocations. Objection 14. This will harden and stumble these ministers and others in their defections and compliances, which will be a partaking of their sin. It will also grieve and make others sad who are tender of such things, and will make all difference of that kind to be thought light of and exceedingly weaken the hands of these that witness against these defections. Testimony Against Toleration, page 32. Answer 1. This was indeed our sixth argument for withdrawing in the time of the toleration, and had great weight when scandalous defections were standing and carrying on, which necessarily inferred a manifold offense in countenancing of them. But now when these are removed, none can be justly offended at union and communion with the persons when the scandals are separated from them. 2. If weight be laid upon offense, no question it will be found to sway to the other side. By division and separation, many of the godly in the land, in neighboring churches, and the posterity will be stumbled and tempted to think our testimonies and contendings against these defections have been nothing but schism. 
This will also make these ministers themselves despise all our witnessing against them and encourage them to say, None in the land oppose their course but schismatics. And it will open the mouths of malignants, and it will cause the popish and prelatical party rejoice and triumph. 3. Our joining in the present circumstances cannot have any tendency to harden them if we continue pleading and protesting against them, but rather to oblige them to consider their ways when they see that these that witness against them are not dividers and protesters are no subverters, and that it is reformation, not schism or separation we design. Objection 15. There are so many apparent inconveniences in this union that we see it will never be well fixed. We have been and are yet divided, and they will still look upon us and we upon them as a distinct party. The unfaithful and self-seeking party among them will still have the greatest sway, etc. Answer, it is a common rule of union when the inconveniencies that follow division are greater and more hurtful to the church than the inconveniencies of union. Then the lesser inconveniences of union are to be chosen rather than the greater of division. So that when things cannot be done as men would simply, then they are to do as they may comparatively. That is, make use of what be most edifying and least hurtful to the church's edification, amongst all means probable and possible. In this, the conscience may have testimony that the way that had fewest inconveniences and manyest advantages to edification was chosen. And though some inconveniencies fall out afterward, yet the conscience may be quiet on this ground. Sometimes the Lord in his providence will order so that there is no side, either union or division can be chosen without inconveniencies, then we must regulate ourselves suitably to the providences and cases we meet with, and to the tempers of these we have to do with. But we are neither to regulate nor answer for providences, and the distempers of others. Indeed, in such a case, the mind may be disquieted because of fear, and the consolation of the duty may be diminished, and affections may be grieved and jumbled, because there is not full satisfaction, yet may the conscience have quietness and peace in its duty notwithstanding. And men are specially to discern and put difference between peace of conscience and the former discomposures, as Master Durham says on Scandal, Part 4, Chapter 7, Rule 5, pages 295 and 96. But I would have it considered whether the inconveniencies of division will not be greater. For let it be inquired, what shall we do next? Whether shall we unite with any church in the nation, or out of it? Or shall we make an independent church of our own, or shall we have no communion or union at all? These last cannot be. Tis impossible we can claim any relation to Christ and have no communion with his body or some part of it. The communion of saints must still be an article of the creed. It must still be the desire of all the saints to have communion and ordinances. There is none of them can live well without it. Psalm 26.8, Psalm 27.4, etc. 
Can we live without ordinances to ourselves and baptism to our children? Shall they be as heathens within the visible church as if they were without? Is not this a misery and a punishment upon ourselves? How absurd is it that the unfaithfulness of ministers should infer the punishment of those that are faithful? The second cannot be said that in this case we must gather and constitute an independent church of our own, distinct from and not subordinate unto the national church, having officers of our own, invested with all church power. For then what shall become of Presbyterian government and our testimony for that against independency, sectarianism, and schism? Or shall not this be a schism, if ever there was any in the world? If the first be said, we must then seek a church in the nation or out of the nation where it can be found purest and freest of these corruptions. Then I ask, first, what if such a church or society cannot be found in the nation? Shall we then leave the nation and in effect in our practice declare it is unchurched? If we cannot find it in the nation, where will we find it out of it? The greatest purity of the rest of the churches will be found scarcely to come the length of this church with all its corruptions. Third, suppose it be found in the nation or out of it, on what terms shall union and communion be settled with that church? Shall it be in these that for every scandal, defection, and corruption not confess there must be a rupture, division, and separation again? then how long shall that church last? And if there be a broader breach, then, what shall be at the end of that breach? Must there be endless divisions and withdrawings? Fourth, this particular church is either a part of the national church or universal church and subordinate unto it, or it is distinct and not subordinate. If it be distinct, then we join with independence. If it be a part of the national church, then in joining with a part, we must join with the whole, for all the parts make but one body, and the church is but one. And therefore, it will not be enough to eschew and avoid sinful communion to withdraw from the rest of the parts of the body, except we withdraw from that part, and all the parts belonging to that one body so corrupted. Let any judge, then, whether the inconveniencies of union or division be the greatest. And thus much an answer to the objections drawn from the compliances of the former times. Now follow some few objections, which ye have drawn from some things supposed to be wrong in the constitution and practice of this church, to which I shall endeavor also to give satisfactory answers. Objection 1. That there are corruptions in the constitution of the church, as now established, being under the bondage of an Erastian yoke, now submitted to, our supreme church judicatories or general assemblies being only called and indicted, adjourned and dissolved by civil authority, and prelimited both with respect to members, some being excluded, and with respect to matters, some terms being laid down by the parliament of the receiving episcopal ministers, and closed with by the assembly, though not coming up to what the word of God requires, and all this yielded to without a testimony. 
For answer, we say, first, this charge is injurious to both church and state, and contrary to both truth and charity, besides the ignorance that is in it. For whatever be the corruptions of the constituent members of this church and her judicatories, or the defects or miscarriages of their administrations, or obstructions put to the exercise of some of the church's powers and privileges, in many cases incident to the best churches in the world, it is false that the constitution of the church is corrupt, having all things that make a church in its constitution true, incorrupt, and entire, soundness of doctrine, purity of worship, and an order of discipline and government of Christ's institution, with all the officers, ordinances, and judicatories appointed by himself, and no new kind of officers, ordinances, or judicatories introduced by any human invention or usurpation. It is false that the church is under the bondage of an Erastian yoke, since the yoke of prelacy and supremacy are removed by law, or that the church hath submitted thereto. It is our mercy that we are required to submit to nothing but what our fathers and all the reformed churches would have gladly yielded unto. And yet we have not submitted to everything has been required. And as this is false, so tis highly uncharitable to suppose the ministers of this church, who formerly wrestled against prelacy and supremacy, would be so contradictory to themselves and treacherous to their master as to betray his interests and the church's privileges, for which they suffered, to any Erastian yoke. Second, the instances alleged are far from proving the charge. It is true the civil magistrate calls and indicts, adjourns and dissolves our general assemblies, but his adjourning and dissolving of them hath been a grievance to many who have declared their grief and dissent. But this is not such a bondage of an Erastian yoke as makes the constitution of the church corrupt, nor to be withdrawn from upon this account, for the dissolving of an assembly cannot make an assembly corrupt in its constitution. If it be so before its dissolution, it is a mercy and not a grievance to dissolve it, and rather a grievance to call it. But this church hath always acknowledged that the king's majesty hath power to indict and call as many general assemblies as he pleases, and appoint what time and place he pleases. So it is acknowledged, Assembly 1638, Session 26, concerning yearly general assemblies. And in their supplication to the king, they owned that they were convened by his majesty's special indiction, and the light of nature seems to instruct that he that calls an assembly may dismiss them when their business is over. But this is not privative of, nor prejudicial to the church's power of calling and adjourning her own assemblies, if he declare the church hath no such power, and to require of the assembly to own they have it not, if he should hinder the convocation of assemblies when they have occasion for them, or dissolve them in the midst of their work when it is needful for them to continue. This were indeed a stretch of Erastian supremacy, and a yoke that could not be submitted to. But as we hope, there is no need to fear that our gracious king will do any such thing. So we cannot complain that he hath done often so. 
He hath not denied the church's privileges in this matter, nor hindered our assemblies when we needed them. And before ever any of our assemblies were dissolved, the moderator declared, the assembly's work was done. And so upon the matter, the assembly dissolved itself, and His Majesty's Commissioner added his subsequent declarator and indiction of another. As for prelimitations, we know none offered nor submitted to. We never saw measures offered for the choice of members to assemblies, nor a moderator chosen but by the full votes of the assembly, nor the votes overruled, nor limiting of matters treated on, but by the determination or order of the records of the assembly. Where these are not, the assembly cannot be called prelimited. We never knew a minister excluded but one for refusing the oath of allegiance, which was done by His Majesty's commissioner by private means, to which he yielded for peace without the assembly's mind ever being sought in that point. The Parliament, indeed, by law, allowed Episcopal ministers to be received into a share of the government upon their subscribing the Confession of Faith, if they were neither insufficient nor negligent, erroneous nor scandalous, which are all the grounds the Scripture gives for debarring or deposing any men from the ministry. In which yet the assembly was left at their liberty. These cannot be called prelimitations of assemblies. Third, let it be granted there be some encroachments upon some of the church's privileges and freedom of assemblies, and in our part a sinful weakness in ceding unto them without a seasonable and suitable testimony, yet a defect in not asserting our rights in difficult circumstances is not a surrender of our rights, nor submission to an Erastian yoke, nor can it impeach the warrantable constitution of a judicatory, Far less can it be a ground of separation from a church that still claims these rights, though it may be her servants and messengers have no strength to contend for them. It is ordinary when Reformation is carrying on that many difficulties are in the way, and that all things cannot be done that are wished. Nor is everything that hath been done formerly and laudably done necessary to be done now in circumstances far different from former times. To everything there is required both time and judgment. A thing may be lawful and not expedient. Yea, an affirmative duty may be necessary at one time and necessarily superseded at another when the circumstances are such that it would do more hurt than good. This is no disowning of the duty nor deserting of a testimony, nor compliance with an encroachment, but a prudent and patient forbearing of it, until it be more seasonable, and may do more good. As Paul withheld a positive testimony even against idolatry at Ephesus, while the people were in a tumult and ferment, not at leisure to hear it. Objection 2. There is no zeal to purge the house of God of perjured curates, nor suitable endeavors used to rid the church of that ungodly crew, nor are censures duly executed against them upon the account of their national scandalous defections. But on the contrary, many contend for their continuance and for receiving them into ministerial fellowship, 
Upon terms that seem to import a condemning of the sufferings of the godly and their testimonies against them, laying aside discipline against corrupt teachers, and receding from the rules and practices of this church without trial and evidence of their repentance, honesty, fitness, and call to the ministry. Yea, now, by act of Parliament, much of the Lord's heritage is given over to them, without any dependence on the judicatories of this church. Answer. This question comes not well from these that are following divided and divisive courses in a separation from this church that are so far from contributing to their help to do that which they require to be done that none do more mar the work and weaken discipline than they. Is it not a shame to you to exclaim so much against men that maintain and promote a schism in this church, and will not own a subjection unto, and dependence upon the judicatories thereof? And in the meantime be guilty of the same things yourselves, and contemn the communion and authority of the church as much as they? This complaint would come better from these that were united with the church, and so concurring in the work had access to excite others to more zeal in purging the church. It would require all the united power and prudence to expeed this work effectually, and manage it so, as none should have ground of complaint. This is the work of an united church, and not of a divided one. It being a matter of the greatest concern, both to the present and future generations, wherein the church in this broken condition is very much straitened, and can do nothing but what shall be cried out against, and lashed with reproaches on all hands. One party complains that we are so severe in our procedure against Episcopal ministers, and so revengeful in retaliating their treatments towards us and purging out so many of them, and thereby making so many congregations desolate that reckon themselves injured and robbed of these they adhere to as their ministers, and in receiving so few of them into ministerial fellowship and a share of the government. Another party complains that we are so slack in purging out those men that have been so long the bane of the church, and under whose ministry the people have so long perished in ignorance and profanity, and so lax in receiving so many of them into our communion, and thereby not only continuing them in this possession of what they had before without right, but admitting them into a share of the government which they had not before. This is grievous to many of ourselves. But for more direct answer, these considerations may lenify the complaint, and satisfy the sober and serious that this is no relevant ground for casting at this church. First, it cannot be denied, but that a considerable number of them were ecclesiastically censured and purged out for their intrusion, erroneous doctrine, persecution of honest people, and scandalous lives, witness their many appeals to the first assembly and several succeeding. These sentences were ratified by the assembly, which appointed censures against all of them that were insufficient or negligent or erroneous or scandalous. That was as great a length as ever this church could go in former times. Second, 
It is granted also that a considerable number of these ministers that were under the bishops are received into ministerial fellowship and a share of the government, but they were reckoned among the best of them, and such against whom there were fewest exceptions. Some of them, simply guilty of conformity with prelacy and of the younger sort bred up under episcopacy, that, well, that stood, had a view of no other organical church to join with, and so acted according to their light, following the epidemic course of the time and place they lived in, which was discovered when the odious test was imposed, that they refused. Some of them have been useful and carried well since. Never any minister contended for receiving all of them, nor could any with reason plead that none of them, even the most worthy and of most excellent talents, should be received at all. If any censurable for insufficiency, negligence, errors on scandals have been received, let a complaint be made, it would be heard." nor have any of them been received upon terms that could import a condemning of the sufferings of the godly, as the objection alleges. For nothing in their reception can import that, except prelacy be justified or not condemned. Now, prelacy is not justified, but may very well be condemned, though some that went along with that course be allowed to come off and received when they do so. Nor is it true that they are allowed to be received without all trial and evidence of their repentance, honesty, fitness, etc. On the contrary, the Church hath proceeded with such tenderness and caution, discovering so much fear and jealousy of bad effects and designs, that upon the account thereof many have complained of too much rigidity. The assembly committing the trust of this to their commissioners required that none be taken in but such as after due trial of their soundness in the faith and all personal and ministerial qualifications should be found to be orthodox, of competent abilities, godly, loyal, and of an edifying gift, giving some ground to expect and believe they will prove conscientious, true, and faithful to Presbyterian government, to which they must profess subjection. These qualifications are very comprehensive, and due regard hath been to them by inferior judicatories, who at their admission used to exhort them to consider their ways and offenses, perjuries, and national and scandalous defections. It is also a mistake that this is alleged to be a receding from the rules and practice of this church, For in the year 1638 there was a more general receiving of them after the worship had been more corrupted with ceremonies. Nothing was then required of them but the subscribing the National Covenant, which was the confession at that time. And now the confession of faith established in this church, which is larger and fuller than that was, is enacted to be subscribed by all entrants, and all that we received into ministerial communion, and their being now required to profess adherence to presbytery and subjection to the present government of this church, and a relinquishing and renouncing of their former ways, and their submitting to these terms and their admission, is upon the matter of profession of their repentance." If any have practically counteracted this in the reception of some, 
they are accountable to the assembly for it. Third, after all that is said to alleviate the charge, let it be conceded, and let us take with guilt in this, that we are defective in zeal in purging the house of God, and that some are not put out, and some are taken in who deserve severer censures. This will not amount to a ground of separation justified in scriptural rules or practices, or the principles of this or other Reformed churches. This will not make the church and her congregations or judicatories so fundamentally corrupt that there is hazard of sin in communion with her. It will only argue judicatories are guilty of some particular aberrations, which none are enjoined to improve so much as by way of connivance, and from which a protestation may acquit any that connors in necessary duties. It was a far more corrupt and wicked judicatory that condemned the Lord of glory, and yet Joseph of Arimathea, a member thereof, was acquitted by a non-consent. Objection 3. It is offensive and stumbling to us that an oath of allegiance and assurance is imposed on all ministers, preachers, and all that are allowed the privilege of calling ministers upon a strange certification and penal sanction, that none are to be received or admitted as ministers, nor continued as such, nor have a right to any maintenance, and that none shall have the privilege of calling ministers, except they that take this oath, which we think an Erastian encroachment on the church's privileges, and a sad enthrallment to ministers, because it is an allegiance illimited, or without due limitations not qualified, as in the covenant, granting to the king a power of putting in and holding out of church officers and privileges whom he pleases, imposed on ministers and others as a new qualification of church members and office-bearers, and this without any conceivable necessity, which is requisite in all lawful oaths, because ministers had many other ways given abundant proofs of their loyalty, appointed instead of all other oaths, and abrogating all other, which seems to infer a burying or laying aside of the covenants. The taking of this seems contrary to an act of assembly, 1648, discharging all oaths in the common cause without advice and consent of the church. This is grievous to the godly in a private station, of whose office ministers should be very tender. It hath had sad effects, dividing ministers and people sadly, and is likely to produce more, being a snare to some that cannot take it in righteousness and judgment, because many honest people cannot understand the debatable rights of kings. And if it be imposed in succeeding governments, it may be of dangerous consequence. We desire either reasons to prove the lawfulness of it, or an acknowledgment of the sinfulness of it. Answer. In the present state of the question, we are neither obliged to prove the lawfulness of this oath, nor acknowledge the sinfulness of it. For that is not the question, whether it be lawful or sinful. But whether, supposing the sinfulness of it, it be a sufficient ground of separation? We say, it cannot be, unless you make everything that is sinful in ministers a ground of separation, which will dissolve all communion in the world. 
For neither can it be heresy to assert that ministers may swear lawful allegiance to lawful kings, the contrary, that they should be always exempted from it, were popish doctrine. Nor can it be idolatry in worship, or contrary to the honor we owe to God, to give so much honor to the king as to swear subjection to him in things lawful. A duty commanded in the fifth command can never be forbidden in the first or second, nor can it amount to the sin of intrusion into the ministry or tyranny in church government to submit to a civil qualification required by a civil law in the state government. Nor can it involve men in the sin of schism in the church to avoid all appearance of sedition in the state. Nor, finally, can any man have any ground of reason to say that a minister submitting to the terms of the civil magistrate in his entering upon or continuing the possession of his benefice doth any way impose sinful terms of communion on them that hear them, there being no law that no man shall hear a minister preach except he swear the oath of allegiance and own and acknowledge that the minister did right in swearing it. Now, Supposing this oath be sinful, yet if it be neither heresy, nor idolatry, nor intrusion into the ministry, nor tyranny in government, nor schism, nor imposing any sinful terms in communion, it cannot be a ground of separation warrantable by the word of God or the doctrine of any reformed divines. Second, We shall further condescend to them, and grant there are some things in these oaths grievous to many of the godly, of whose offense we desire to be tender. It may be grievous that in our day public oaths, as tests of loyalty, have been so much multiplied, and more frequently imposed than in any nation of the world, to the ensnaring and debauching of many consciences, which may justly make the tender to fear and be averse from oaths. And as to this particular oath, there are some things in the manner of enacting and way of imposing it, very unpleasant and dissatisfying to ourselves. We are grieved that after all our most public and solemn assertings of the king's right and of our allegiance to it, before God and the world, in our preaching and praying for this government and giving all other proofs of loyalty that ever could be required of or performed by any ministers, an oath of allegiance should be imposed, importing some suspicion of our disaffection and disloyalty, which is odious to all that are conscious of their own sincerity. If the government had thought fit to impose it on all subjects as such, without distinction or exemption of any rank, none could have quarreled it, but... It is unpleasant for ministers to be specially singled out and required under that reduplication to take an oath that belongs to all others as well as to them as if they were the persons most to be suspected. Nor are we satisfied that it should be extended to all that are allowed to call ministers, and with any speciality required of them as such, since there are many who cannot be deprived of a privilege to call ministers that yet do not understand the rights of government, and so are not in capacity to take this oath in judgment, as oaths should always be taken. 
Neither do we approve the annexed certification or penal sanction that none are to be received or admitted as ministers or continued as such, etc., except they take this oath. If any other thing be understood by it than simply that they shall not be admitted to nor continued in the possession of the legal maintenance, which indeed the civil magistrate may deprive ministers of for disobedience, but cannot hinder their being received or continued as ministers, we regret all the sad effects of it in promoting division among ministers and people in some places, and shall be sorry if this be pleaded as a precedent in all succeeding governments. But though these things be grievous to many, and dissatisfying to ourselves, yet they need not be offensive or stumbling to you, so as to give you any ground to think or conclude that ministers taking this oath in these circumstances is a compliance with an enthralling encroachment upon the church's privileges, granting to the king a power of putting in and holding out of church offices and privileges when he pleases, and to impose new qualifications upon ministers, etc. And that, therefore, you are obliged in conscience to withdraw from them upon the account of this compliance. Many things may be matters of grief and dissatisfaction to the mind that are not grounds of offense to the conscience, much less grounds of separation? Nor will you find that you have ground to draw much harsh conclusions if you will consider. Third, no reformed divine ever denied that the civil magistrate hath power and authority to impose all civil duties on all his subjects, and consequently on ministers. He that hath power to command and compel them to be faithful and diligent, even in all ministerial duties, that all things be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven, which he hath commanded, may certainly impose upon them all lawful civil duties, and in some cases exact of them legal securities by oath or other ways for their faithfulness in these duties. An oath of allegiance and assurance is of this nature, which may be imposed on ministers as well as others. The matter and form of this oath is unexceptionable. There is nothing in it that can be called unlawful, nothing but what we and all subjects are antecedently obliged to. No allegiance is required, but that which is true and faithful, which cannot be illimited and unlawful. Nor do we understand anything by it but true loyalty and obedience in the Lord, or in the preservation and defense of the true religion, according to the words expressed in the covenant. Nor doth this oblige us to obey any unlawful command, or comply with any encroachment, prejudicial to the church's privileges, but rather may give confidence to oppose them. Because by this it may appear... Such opposition doth not flow from a principle of disloyalty, since we go the full length in paying all duties we owe to the king. Nor can ministers, simply taking of the oath, infer or import their homologating or justifying the sanction of it, or every clause of the act enjoining it. We declare we never looked upon this oath of allegiance as a new required qualification of ministers, so as without this they were not to be received as such by Christian people, 
We look upon true loyalty and allegiance to magistrates as a necessary qualification of all Christians and ministers, but not the swearing of it. Neither did any minister swear it under that reduplication as a minister to be thereby further qualified for the ministry. But as a subject required to give this lawful signification and demonstration of lawful loyalty to a lawful king. And as the matter of the oath could not be scrupled, so neither the object whom God hath so graciously set over us as his lawful vicegerent, who must be acknowledged as well de jure as de facto to be only king of these realms, whose right is so undoubted and government so encouraging, that they that refuse allegiance to King William must be such as no king on earth can please. That which is objected with greatest show of reason is that there could be no doubt nor question of ministers' loyalty who had given so many proofs of it. So there could be no necessity of an oath for confirmation without which oaths cannot be warranted. But let it be considered that as it is not necessarily required of subjects to understand all the reasons of state or the necessities for the laws which they are bound to obey, if they know the lawfulness of them, Christians are not under bondage in such cases, but God calls them to peace. So, when this oath was first enacted, there were several things in the state of affairs obvious to all men that seemed to plead for the necessity thereof. It was a time of war, wherein many subjects, and not a few in the profession of ministers, that is, episcopals, were involved in rebellion. It might seem necessary there should be something imposed to distinguish and discover the king's friends from his foes. It was in a case of competition between two kings, like that between Joash and Athaliah, Second Kings 11.4, etc., wherein Jehoiada imposed an oath of allegiance upon the Levites as well as others. The like was done not long after the Reformation in Scotland, in the competition between King James and his mother Mary. Ministers were to swear the oath, recognizing the king's authority out of the pulpit under the pain of deprivation. Act 46, Parliament 3, King James VI, in the year 1572 in which cases such an oath to one king is a testimony against the other, and a securing of his title against the pretensions of the other. It is likewise very natural to suppose many about the king that are none of our best friends might suggest to his majesty that Presbyterian ministers, though now professing loyalty, yet if they were tried would not engage for it, nor promise by oath to be so. This might induce the king to judge it necessary to try them with this oath, and so put an end to the controversy. And the same might induce ministers to think it necessary to take this oath, and so confute all these calumnies and evil surmises. It is vain to imagine that this being appointed instead of all other oaths and abrogating of all other seems to infer a burying or laying aside of the covenants. We are confident no such thing was in the mind or design of the enactors, nor can the words bear any such sense, but only that this was appointed instead of all other oaths of allegiance, or supremacy, or others imposed by the late government, which may rather commend than afford any matter of stumbling at it.
Neither is that other scruple better founded that an act of assembly, 1648, discharges all new oaths in the common cause, imposed without advice and consent of the church, for that act respects new oaths about religion or reformation, or for approving some of the administrations of the state, which the church could not approve, and especially, as is there expressed, negative oaths or bonds, which may anyway limit or restrain men in their duty, whereunto they are obliged by covenants. This oath is not at all of that nature, but only respecting civil allegiance to the king, which we are obliged to by the covenants, which neither obliges us to approve anything unlawful, nor can any way limit or restrain us in or from any duty. Now, to draw to a conclusion, dearly beloved, are witnesses in heaven, that the design of what is here said is neither to irritate nor expose you, but out of sincere love to your soul's welfare to undeceive you and reclaim you from your sad mistakes. We do therefore beseech, exhort, and obtest you as you love your souls and the church's peace. Consider without prejudice what is here offered to you. Be not stiff-necked, but yield yourselves unto the Lord, and enter into his sanctuary, which he hath sanctified for ever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away. If you will lay these things to heart, it will not be in your power to shift the conviction of your being a considerable length out of the good old way of truth and peace. And if you be not refractory, we would offer you some directions whereby you may find it again. Search and try your ways, and turn again to the Lord. Remember whence you are fallen, and repent, and do your first works. True contrition for your own sins would remove the causes of schism, and so the effect would cease. It would drive you to Christ, the Prince of Peace, which would remove the holy cause of it, the anger of the Lord, and would remove the sinful, fomenting cause of it, pride and self-conceit of your being more righteous than those you separate from. Be more humble, and you will soon be reconciled to the way of peace. Strife shall cease, if nothing be done in vainglory, but in lowliness of mind each esteem others better than themselves. Endeavor to increase your knowledge of the truths of God, and you shall soon discover the folly of division. Ignorance is the mother of schism. Be more spiritual and exercised in the pursuit of communion with God, and you shall have a greater desire to entertain communion with the church. If you would know where he feeds and makes his flocks to rest at noon, you must go to the shepherd's tents. If you would seek him whom your soul loveth, you must go about the city and streets thereof, and ask at the watchman. The more concern you have for your own soul, and panting hunger after God, the more desire you would have for the ordinances of his courts and tabernacles. Get more love to Christ and his people, and this will natively lead you to union and communion with all that keep his way, and will remove that spirit of factiousness and prejudice and jealousy that nourishes division. Keep your zeal lively against all sin, but let it have two edges, to resent the dishonor done to God by schism as well as defection. 
Let it be balanced with charity and managed with discretion. And we request you that you study uniformity in your zeal, that you be not like cakes unturned, hot for some lesser points in religion, and cold for others that are greater and more weighty. Be fervent for all truths and in all duties, but with a regular proportion to the concern in the vitals of religion. Let religion be more in your heart than head, in practice than in controversy. Neglect not the duties of your general calling of piety towards God, sobriety in yourselves, righteousness and mercy to men, brotherly love and holy Christian fellowship. And forget not the relative duties of your particular callings. Have a care of the idleness of busybodies, 1 Thessalonians 4.11. But study to be quiet, and do your own business, and to work with your own hands. Beware of them that cause divisions and offenses, and avoid them. And look on them that blow the bellows of contention as no friends to your or the church's interest. Finally, study to be united with one another, and with your pastors make acquaintance and entertain frequent and friendly converse with them. Receive the law at their mouth, for they are the messengers of the Lord of hosts. Grieve them not by your contempt, or continued withdrawing, lest they be put to complain of you to God, and it becomes sin unto you. I shall shut up all with one word to all the Lord's people, and that in the words of the Apostle. Dear brethren, if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources, and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things reformed.